And um, my mom just came in. <laughs> Not to give too much attention to her. <laughs> so, good morning. <laughs> So this morning I want to, in a way, uh, complete the, the sequence that's taken us about four weeks and that, in a way, followed from where Sylvia was teaching in, in her sequence. And I've worked with the last three factors of the Eightfold Path, which are the meditation-related factors of the Eightfold Path, uh, the classical teachings, the ancient teachings. And those factors are what's usually translated as effort, or we could say energy in practice, uh, the quality of or factor of mindfulness, and the factor of concentration. And I've particularly been looking at that last factor of concentration. And today I want to more broadly uh, look at the way that in our practice, all of these three factors are quite important to develop. And it's helpful to focus on each of these factors in a sense in an isolated way to, to say, let me develop further with my effort or my energy. Let me develop further in mindfulness. Let me develop further in concentration and to really focus in those ways. But so I want to talk some about what that looks like again in, in, in a way to um, bring together what we've been looking at. But I especially want to focus maybe the last uh, half or even longer of the talk on the way that as our practice deepens and we've given attention to effort, mindfulness, and concentration, that those increasingly are interwoven and that we move towards in our practice, we move towards what could be called a kind of effortless effort in which mindful, mindfulness and concentration and effort are interwoven and more almost an expression of our natural being. And I think that's actually very hopeful in a way, that what we're doing with our practice is that we are, in a sense, practicing being ourselves. It's an interesting way to look at our practice. And, you know, the starting point for that is that we've, in, a, in, in some ways, uh, lost connection with ourselves. We've lost connection with some of our, our depths. You know, in, in many ways, we've lost connection with other parts of ourselves. But we've also kept some connection, <laughs> you know, or we wouldn't be here. And so, uh, so I think that that's an interesting way to look at the practice, that in a way we are retraining ourselves or training ourselves to rest more fully in our basic nature. And so I want to, in that second half, explore that theme a little bit more and add in various points that I think I haven't, haven't fully made yet. So when we talk about these three factors of the classical path, it's good to remember that these, again, are the meditation-related factors. There also are the factors related uh, to uh, living ethically, living with um, a sense of integrity. And the, the classical factors are translated as uh, right or wise or mature uh, uh, livelihood, 
speech and action, which really means living according to the ethical guidelines, living in ways that we don't harm others, in ways that we bring out care and compassion in our lives. And the factors involving wisdom are two, uh, what usually would be called right or wise understanding and right or wise um, aspiration or intention. And this is really gets us going, gets us practicing. So what's interesting is that these, uh, these other factors are quite important for the meditation-related factors. I was thinking particularly we need to lead a certain, have a certain level of integrity in our lives and lead eth- live ethically or it becomes very hard to meditate. You know, it becomes very hard to sleep, basically. <laughs> you know, if, we're, if, we, if we are living with uh, a lot of regrets or remorse or uh, caught in various uh, unskillful actions, it's very hard to settle the mind. You know, and then sometimes in actual training situations, people may ask for meditation instructions and a skillful teacher might actually not give the instructions right away. You know, that might have people do what could be called character development. The, uh, first, the, the, one of the most famous stories of this is the great Tibetan teacher Milarepa. Some of you know, one of the most beloved of uh, Tibetan teachers, poet, great meditator, who uh, before he entered the meditation path was a serial killer. I'm, exa- I'm using that a little dramatically, but he, um, he had a bunch of family problems. <laughs> and he, uh, he's living about the 11th century, and he um, had relatives who basically uh, were very mean to his mother and his family and took property and so forth. And to gain revenge, he, so the story goes, he learned black magic and was able to call down hailstorms on them, which he did, killing quite a number of people. <laughs> you want to read his story? It's a, it's a powerful story. You could, there, there might be you know, modern counterparts. There are actually of people who have actually, you know, there are stories of people who have been part of the you know, who were Vietnam veterans, for example. There's a, a man named Claude Thomas, some of you may have read his book, who was a Vietnam veteran who said, I have, you know, I bear responsibility for killing 50 people, you know, in, in the context of war. And he became a very devoted and fiery practitioner. And it was a beautiful book. It's very, you know, very moving. It's worked a lot with veterans. And so Milarepa also had this history, and he, and he said, I want to turn to meditation, you know, which was there in the culture, in Tibetan culture. And he went to his teacher, and his teacher uh, refused to give him meditation instructions. Instead, he had him build a tower for him. In other words, he had him doing manual labor, which he did for, I think, the better part of a year. You know, and when he had built the tower, his teacher, who was Marpa, one of the great Tibetan teachers said, well, you know, I don't like it so much. Um, tear it down. Let's build another. And he did this reportedly three times. And uh, this sort of 
worked out some character issues. <laughs> no, so I'm, I just mentioned that. I just mentioned that because um, the ethical dimension is very crucial for meditation. All of these factors are crucial. You know, having a wise understanding, having a sense of what one's orientation is, is crucial for deepening in meditation. And it's not simply, as it were, a linear process where we develop ethically, we get that act together, and then we do meditation. But also, as we deepen in meditation, it informs how we act ethically. I think particularly as we deepen in meditation, it informs our sense of not being so separate, of more being, of being more interdependent, of being more connected, more, and you know, our hearts are open. We become more empathic, more compassionate, and it deeply affects how we are with people, how we act, our sense of what, of what following the ethical precepts means. So it's, it's more like, almost like a spiral. Whereas we deepen in meditation, we also deepen in ethics and wisdom. And they all, in a way, reinforce each other. So this is the context for these three factors. It's really a total life in which we work really on all the parts of ourselves. And it's a great question to ask, where do I need to attend? You know, these, here we have eight different factors named. You know, for some people it is to look at the, the ethical dimension of what's my appropriate work right now. For some people, there may be a transition period we're in where we feel like we're not doing quite what is appropriate right now. And those, that can also uh, have tremendous uh, positive impact on our meditation. So we can look at these three factors, effort, uh, mindfulness, and concentration separately and see how we develop in each of those in our practice. And I want to give a little bit of attention to those uh, you know, and show in particular how they start to get interwoven before talking about the, that more mature way in which they are deeply interwoven. So we looked at this question of effort, or you know, maybe it's a question of energy, which is a very, this very crucial question about our practice. That's, that one, it's one that... Uh, comes up a lot to really look deeply into ourselves, to work with our stuff, to work through the material. It can take a lot of effort. You know, that in a way, to be ourselves, which we would think would be something we just do naturally, but to be deeply ourselves actually takes effort. Paradoxical. It takes effort to come to the depths of ourselves. It doesn't just happen. You know, and it's really crucial to look, am I, am I giving the kind of energy and prioritizing to what's important in my life that fits with who I want to be? You know, and this, these are challenging questions. It's also challenging to know what does effort mean? Okay, I want to deepen. What does it mean? Does it mean I go to a lot of retreats or start sitting three hours? You know, and it's, there are a lot of does it mean that I ask of myself some kind of superhuman effort and striving? It can be quite confusing if we ask, what does it mean to increase my level of energy or effort? You know, what might it mean? You know, some of it's quite concrete. For some of us, it can be very specific that, the, that to deepen in this factor of effort means simply to have a more regular practice. Or to, it, could, it could be to sit a little more. It could be to have more quality in one sitting. It could be to 
have an emphasis on bringing the qualities of mindfulness, awareness, could be loving kindness into one's daily life. And to, you know, part of, part of effort is to be part of communities like this where we can have mutual support. You know, so there are, you know, there's whole checklists of what, of what effort might mean. You know, I, I mentioned last time that the way that it's expressed classically is more in the context of meditation. I, what I just mentioned is more in terms of our, our total uh, approach to our lives. But in the context of the classical teachings, is expressed as a factor of meditation. And I, I mentioned the, the way that it's expressed uh, traditionally, or the way that it's translated, which, which um, for many of us is not quite as inspiring as I think this teaching really is. So I talked about this four, these four qualities of effort, the, the non-arising of unarisen, unwholesome states, number one. Number two, the abandoning of arisen, unwholesome states. Number three, the arising of unarisen, unwholesome states. And number four, the maintenance of arisen, wholesome states. Well, if you actually think it through, it's actually quite clear and and actually can be quite inspiring. And, you know, uh, wholesome and unwholesome is a translation of the words kusala and akusala, which probably discussed this last time, probably can be better translated as skillful. Wholesome and unwholesome sounds like breakfast cereal or something. You know, um, or you know, make sure you have whole grain brown rice or something. I don't know. That's my take on it. it. Might it might work for you, but it really has to do with those states of mind and heart and body which tend towards less greed, hatred, and delusion. That which that which really helps us to open up to mindfulness. And so many of us prefer the translation skillful. But if we look at those four. Uh, qualities of effort. I mentioned last time how one of my students said that sounds like the four guidelines for skill, skillful kayaking. You know, and it, it actually is a way to express it in a very down-to-earth way. The first, the non-arising of unarisen, unwholesome states means, in kayaking terms, stay out of trouble. Watch out for uh, states that aren't very good to get into, that haven't yet arisen, and don't go there or don't go into that territory. Watch out for distractions. Watch out where you're spending your time. That's what that means. Very important part of effort is to um, avoid dissipating energy, avoid distraction. Um, watch out for places that you know get you into mind states or states, uh, you know, states that are not, are not good for you. You know, that's actually a big part of uh, practice. You know, when I talk one-on-one with people, for a significant percentage of people, it's a, it's a major issue that they say, I spend too much time on the internet and I just get lost for hours. You know, people say, or I go here, or I go there, or, you know, of course, this would have to do with using, um, using um, substances like alcohol or other uh, consciousness-altering substances unskillfully, you know, not going places or not going into certain discussions with people that you know will lead to friction, right? You know, that one might make that, those choices. That's a part of wise effort. And the second is know what to do if you get in trouble. That's the abandoning of arisen unwholesome states. It's if you find yourself with very difficult mind states and heart states, how do you work with them? How do you, how do you transform them? 
and the third is the arising of unarisen wholesome states, which means how do you cultivate the beautiful qualities like mindfulness or loving kindness or patience or equanimity? What kinds of practices, what kind of approaches help you to develop those? And the fourth is to maintain them once they're arisen. So that is, um, that is one account of what, it, of what wise effort is that, uh, again, we can, we can ask ourselves, what does, this, what does this mean for me? It can mean really prioritizing our practice. Again, a huge issue when I work one-on-one with people, how to prioritize what's important you know, in a culture in which there are endless distractions. You know, not, it's not easy. You know, how, to, um, how to find ways to have one's practice come alive, how to find ways to have one's practice come alive in the flow of daily life. This is part of what comes up when we ask, what's the meaning of wise effort? You know, wise mindfulness, we can also focus on that and cultivate that. Mindfulness is this beautiful quality of being able to be present in a very direct way with whatever's happening in experience. It's to be able to be with anger or sadness or joy or body sensations and simply be there with what's happening. To be there in a present-centered way, an open way, a way that's non-reactive, that is really holding experience with a level of clarity, and level of care, you know, and as we, and this is taken to be the, actually the core tool of transformation in the, in the ancient text, the Buddha says, the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness says, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, to actually be with experience very fully, very directly to be able to see the difference between the more direct experience, which could be pleasant or unpleasant, to see the difference between that and the stories we tell, the narratives we have. So a difficult experience happens at work. To be mindful of it, we can notice irritation or anger, unpleasant experiences in the body, and we notice the story developing about this wretch of a boss or something like that, or could be blaming myself, right? And we notice those stories, and it's not to say that there might not be some truth in them, but our practice is to really study that, to really study experience. And the core uh, of mindfulness is that as we look more deeply at experience, we start to be aware of certain basic patterns. The beginning instructions of mindfulness practice are to be aware of our body, be aware of sensations in the body, be aware of the breath. You know, as we go more deeply, we study our, we we notice our thoughts, we notice our emotions. We look at our patterns of reactivity, very crucial part of our practice. As we practice with mindfulness, we become interested as our practice matures in how we lose it. This could be a major assignment for most of us. Study how you get lost. Study how you suffer. Because as we, <clears throat> as we do that, 
we start to have some wisdom develop. We start to look more deeply. So I know for me, in, for example, working with um, studying judgments in myself, the judgmental mind that would be reactive and kind of reactive and, let's say, blame self or other, I know for myself in at really key moments of studying my own judgmental nature, and this was with a, um, uh, some really formative experiences with a difficult boss that I had for several years, sustained period of practice. <laughs> and, but I was, you know, I, with some guidance from a teacher, I was really able to look very, very carefully at what happened in my interactions and actually to study it in the moment and notice my reactions and, and go into these settings wanting to study how I would start reacting. I would go into meetings almost like they were retreats and say, I'm really interested in seeing how I lose it today. You know? <laughs> right? And I think we have to have that interest because the mindfulness really lets us see deeply into certain core patterns. One of the patterns is how we suffer, is how we react, how we suffer, and that has to become a core area of our study. We also study more and more impermanence, how things change. And a third area that's often singled out is that we study how we form a separate solid self in the world. We study our self-image. We look at when self-image arises. We look at when a sense of self surfaces in experience. So mindfulness opens us up in these ways. It lets us see experience carefully. And as we have developed the ability to be with the body, to be with thoughts, to be with emotions, then we move to start seeing the deeper patterns of experience. And that's what starts to be actually deeply freeing. We see the patterns of suffering and we're able to release them. So I was able to notice how I would, with a difficult um, boss, would be in a meeting and things wouldn't be going like I wanted them to go. And I would, noticing myself starting to be reactive and my own particular pattern of coping with that was to withdraw emotionally into that, the stance that I call a withdraw emotionally into a stance of distanced moral superiority. <laughs> Which is very gratifying. <laughs> I take by the laughter that this is familiar. <laughs> Otherwise known as passive aggression. <laughs> yes, yes. Some of us have other styles. <laughs> you know, which are, but to study, to study those patterns and to notice them and to come up with ways of actually not following the habitual pattern, deeply freeing. And we, have, we do this. My own experience in practice is that I learned, to, I learned to see my main patterns and study the main ways I get lost, to study my anger, my confusion, my despair, my judgments, my fear, and so forth. And this, is what mean, this means that actually part of mindfulness practice is not always that pleasant. I have to say, to say that. <laughs> Truth in advertising. That some of insight practice is seeing what, to use a technical term, is called our yucky territory. 
and to study it over and over again. And it's not pleasant. It takes resources. It takes support because some significant part of our practice is hanging out there. And this is partly where, you know, where, when we ask what does wise effort mean, it means to be, to be able to stay with that, to have resources so we can stay with the hard stuff, be present with it. You know, it's one of the aspects of wise effort, to be with difficult states and know how to be skillful with them. It's a huge part of our practice to do that. It also points to the way that really one of the, one of the ways that wise concentration comes in because concentration, as we deepen, tends to be more blissful, tends to be more pleasant, and actually is a great resource for being with the hard stuff. There's a, there's a way that this all balances out, that as we deepen in concentration, whether we do this in loving kindness or with the breath, there's a way that we touch these beautiful, often blissful, restful, easeful, relaxed, um, deeply, really healing states of being. You know, loving kindness can do that. It, they really teach us that our deeper nature may have this quality of restfulness and ease and bliss and spaciousness and equanimity. That when we practice something like loving kindness practice, which is a concentration practice, we learn that we can rest in that, that beauty of an open heart. And those practices are both deeply transformative on their own, but they also, in the psyche, give a kind of balance for doing the insight practice. To look carefully at ourselves is hard. To look carefully at experience is not easy. You know, it's like I, I'm reminded of something that uh, Cornell West said, who's a great uh, sort of social philosopher. He was quoting Socrates, who said, "The examined worth is not worth the examined the unexamined life is not worth living." And then Cornell West add, added to that, "And the examined life is hard." <laughs> right? And so uh, the concentration practice can really be a great boon because it gives us this renewal. And so it's actually wise for us to have that balance of the two. And so I men- I've mentioned some of the ways that effort works with concentration, um, that we need to find ways to stay with one object, but to have it be come out of a relaxed place, this paradoxical balance of being both very firm and deeply relaxed. You know, and, and to learn to have that effort come really from our whole being. I've mentioned how the etymology of the word samadhi, which we translate with concentration, which again could better be translated with words like unification of mind or collectedness of mind, how that quality of samadhi is not so much me focusing with my mind like a, you know, almost like a microscope just going right into something that's separate from me, but it's more like a collectedness. It's more like our whole being unifies itself around the breath, not like a part of myself focuses on the breath. That can actually be an unskillful way to concentrate. So the, to, but to have that whole 
part, that whole um, unification of our being takes a lot of relaxation. And so learning skillful effort and concentration takes time. But it can really be a great benefit to stay with it, to just give a period of concentration, or like we were doing in the guided meditation. Sometimes it's very helpful to have 20 minutes of concentration practice, and then just to stay with, stay with concentration. It can also be very, very helpful sometimes just to have one minute or two minutes in which we have our best quality concentration. Because sometimes that's hard to keep for 20 minutes. Probably in the first 20 minutes here, our minds may have wandered. <laughs> I'll speak for myself. My mind wandered a little bit. Perhaps yours did as well. And yet, sometimes when we summon that effort for one minute, we can taste what concentration means in a different way. And then we can, then we can expand it if we're practicing their own. We do it for one minute and really have the strong focus. And then we expand it to two minutes or five minutes. If we just did 20 minutes or 40 minutes all the time, we might be more vague. But so that's a skillful means to help us develop in concentration or just to have longer sittings can be very beneficial as well or to have a retreat where you just focus on one object the whole time can be very, uh, very skillful. I had some further uh, quotations that a friend gave me a few days ago about concentration. From, this, is from, uh, this is from one of her teachers. Uh, was a teacher, actually a teacher, uh, kind of a, a mystic who lives in Vancouver named Janet Adler, who is also a teacher of authentic movement. And she says, listening means concentrating. Concentration is the central force of all mystical practices. Strong statement. So I mentioned that as we practice all three of these more fully, they start to get interwoven, which is quite beautiful. They start to get interwoven, and the effort starts to become more effortless. I mentioned how as these factors get stronger, and I think we take, can taste these at certain moments. If we do retreats, we may have retreats where we experience this for a period of time, which can be very deeply inspiring. And some aspects of this effortless effort are qualities, I think, that we experience just in daily life in, in various ways. So we can see, for example, how uh, to do mindfulness practice, we need concentration. We do concentration practice at the first, that we, you know, there's a phrase in the um, discourse on the foundations of mindfulness where the Buddha says we start by abandoning, the, the stock phrase in the text is we abandon, we abandon, uh, it's translated as we abandon covetousness and grief for the world, you know, which I think can be misleading. I, the way I interpret it, is that we give up a kind of um, uh, reaction, reactivity, either in which we either reactively push away the negative or we re reactively grab hold of the positive. That would be the covetousness. So I don't think it means that we stop having grief. That would be silly and impossible. <laughs> but it's more that there's a certain level of reactivity in the mind that ceases as we start mindfulness practice, and that depends on concentration. That we need uh, a certain level of concentration 
to develop mindfulness. And we also, I think this is quite significant and a reason to give more focus on concentration, we need to have a pretty quiet mind in order to go deeply. It's why I think I would recommend giving more attention to concentration both in daily practice and considering doing retreats, that we need concentration to see through our usual, usual habitual thoughts. You know, I think we, we know that from the sitting, that we need to have some stability of mind or the thoughts just go on forever. Have you noticed that? And so to have a focused development of concentration help is necessary for that. It really is totally possible to have one's habitual thoughts have way less power. I think, I think most of us uh, know that. We need concentration to be able to see through the solidity of our sense of self and the solidity of the objects of the world. When the mind gets more still and quiet, there's more we perceive the world, more like a flow of energy and less as discrete object here, discrete object there, self here, how do I manipulate the objects to get pleasure and avoid pain? (laughs) One of the main narratives of life, right? But when we have concentration, we see through that. We see that we're more part of a continuum, an interdependent continuum of this luminous energy, basically. At our best moments, we notice that, you know, and it can remind us of how to live, you know, and that we need concentration to, to, to be able to see like that. We need concentration in order to have this purification process occur, which I talked about a few, two, two times ago. That concentration helps uh, material from the unconscious, to use modern language, come up. That again, not always very easy or pleasant, but it, it helps us to transform. And concentration is necessary for that process to occur. Concentration is also necessary for mindfulness to really see accurately those qualities that I was mentioning of being able to see the roots of suffering or to see impermanence or to see this structure of self. One of the quotations on the handout, practitioners develop concentration a practitioner who is concentrated understands things as they really as they really are. And yet also with concentration, mindfulness develops. You know, even though we're not deliberately trying to label things in mindfulness, as we deepen in concentration, there can be a tremendous mindfulness that develops. We notice more subtle aspects of our mind, as I mentioned. Uh, the purification process happens. Things come up. We notice them. All sorts of things occur. Concentration uh, really is often understood as only being there because we have a certain level of mindfulness that can help orient ourselves. And as as we develop in all of these qualities, we come towards this quite a beautiful quality of what, I, what is sometimes called effortless effort, you know, which is, is a wonderful way to be. And I, I mentioned, I think it's something that we experience at certain moments, at different times, that in, in, I know when I was reflecting on my own life that there have been times where, before I ever heard of meditation, where I experienced something like effortless effort and it brought about a certain hap- deep happiness it might come when we're deeply immersed, let's say, in art or in music. 
You know, I know one of my experiences came when I was in college and I got deeply immersed in working on an essay, uh, which um, resulted in going into what felt like a timeless realm where I was just with this and I was oblivious to my external circumstances and it lasted like for six hours or something. And I came out of that and said, wow, I haven't, I haven't experienced that before. That was something very special. There was a sense of totally using all my faculties, of being totally present. And I think we experience this. We experience this sometimes when we're in love or when we're doing something creative or when we're in the natural world. And there's a fullness there and time leaves and there's fullness of awareness, fullness of concentration, you know. And what's very interesting is that there are these um, ways that we can train for that. I think in a lot of the arts, you know, when we, when we train in music, we start with effort. But what characterizes a great musician is that that person's practice is pretty much equivalent to performance, you know that the, you know, one starts by doing scales and all the exercises. And as you get better, uh, f- first of all, the music doesn't take the same quality of effort. It doesn't feel hard, right? Same thing with, you know, with, with something like athletics. You know, I know from, I was a competitive swimmer for 10 years. And sometimes there was a lot of effort that felt hard. But at certain points, there's tremendous energy, but not a sense of straining and not a sense of even trying very hard. There's a kind of effortless effort which is there. And again, I think how many people can relate to something in your own experience where you experience something like effortless effort? In some ways, it's quite beautiful. And so in meditation, that same, that same quality develops as we practice more, that the, the mindfulness can sometimes feel unimpeded, natural, just naturally occurring. It's almost as if mindfulness is our basic nature just to be aware, just to be present, just to stay with experience, you know, as if that's who we are. You know, I know when I did my first retreat, which was a long time ago, I was a student and I was very interested in studying altered states of consciousness. And I had read a lot of the psychology of altered states. Many young people were interested in in that. And I did my first retreat and I came back with a slogan, which was because I found that actually I came to see that my normal consciousness was more altered and that what I actually experienced in meditation felt more natural and unaltered. So I came back with a slogan, which was civilization is an altered state of consciousness. (laughs) Uh, uh, But I think it points to the way that, you know, as we deepen in something like mindfulness, there can be periods when we're just present and it's happening on its own accord. And there's not that, there's, there's tremendous energy and effort, but it doesn't feel like we're putting out any energy, just like the, the everyday life example that I was given. Same thing with concentration. We can be in deeply concentrated states and uh, have the sense that it's just happening naturally, that we're, you know, the metaphors that we use are, I'm in a groove or I'm riding the rails, you know, like a train that doesn't have to use effort to stay on the track, right? That up till that point, there is a kind of effort or we might call, you know, one way of making sense of this conceptually is to say there's proactive effort 
And then there's a kind of receptive effort in which we're just sitting back and there's tremendous effort, but it's like I'm not doing anything, which is a beautiful state. A passage from the Buddha. I'll just close with a few passages. Passage from the Buddha. This is, I think, pointing to this quality of effortless effort, which he sometimes talked about as non-fashioning, you know, beyond either efforting or not efforting. So he, here's the, the quotation. Tell me, dear sir, he's asked, how you crossed over the flood, which is a metaphor for, for the entanglements of the world. I crossed over the flood, he said, without pushing forward, without staying in place. You think about that, that's paradoxical. But how did you cross over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place? When I pushed forward, said the Buddha, I was whirled about. When I stayed in place, I sank. And so I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. We could stay in silence now for about half an hour and just be with that one, right? Or I was also thinking of this uh, beautiful quotation from the uh, Bengali woman Deepama, you know, who, who was asked once by Jack Kornfield, what's in your mind? And she had very deep practice, deep concentration, said the only thing that's there is concentration, peace, and loving kindness, more or less stabilized. You know, that's what's there. You know, that's a kind of, so all those are there, but she's not trying to make them be there. They're just sort of naturally occurring. And so that effortless effort is a, is a state of awareness, of mindfulness, of great energy, of concentration, of the, the open heart and equanimity and I, I thought I would just close with a, a line from the uh, poet uh, Blake you know, about this, uh, which is really about this effortless effort. He, this very uh, pungent line from, from one of his poems, energy is the only life. Energy is eternal delight. <laughs> so I'll just end with that and ha- invite us to sit for a minute or so. Thank you for your kind attention and we have some time just to uh, talk with each other for a little while if there are any questions or reflections. Please.
So the question is about uh, concentration practice being hard and sometimes feeling like she's straining, could almost feel like there's a headache and how to, um, you know, really how to approach concentration practice. Um, It is challenging. It, It can be very beneficial to have a period of uh, sustained concentration practice, like, like a retreat, even a short retreat, can make a huge difference in concentration. And um, so one answer to that is, is that simply staying with it actually can lead to the deepening. It, it, it can be tremendously beneficial to have a retreat. You know, I, I work with peop- quite a few people on an ongoing basis and I, you know, maybe typically meet with them once a month, and I see people before a retreat and after a retreat. And it's quite striking that, you know, that if people do a seven-day retreat, what their minds are like after, uh, after seven days of effort. You know, so that's one, one response. Uh, also, not to really, um, it's, uh, it's not about straining. It is, it is about looking for that balance of... Uh, uh, relaxation and persistence, um, but it is it it is challenging. It can be, it can be challenging, and uh, what's what's do you have you have, what's your daily practice like in terms of amount of time? About twenty five minutes. Twenty five minutes. Maybe three or four times a week. Three or four times a week. So, uh, it can be helpful. You know, there is a quantitative aspect to this. You know, there's, I think, qualitative aspect also, but quantitatively, it can help simply to do more if you're interested in deepening concentration. You know, more meaning every day and maybe 40 minutes. You know, that, that would, and, and then with periodic retreats. I think um, some of it also has to do with how much there can be just in the flow of daily life, a kind of resting and, you know, something like... Um, um, a stabilizing awareness in the flow of daily life, but this is yeah. I I don't want to say you're doing it wrong at all, but just to uh, agree with you that it can be challenging, and that you you know I, I expect you're doing it great, but it's just that to go to further levels of concentration can take some uh, need, may need some dedication of effort, of energy and time. That's always kind of the, often a stock answer to all questions is <laughs> practice a little more. <laughs> so. Other other questions, please. Yeah. Um, you know, the, when you're talking about examining your life, yeah. Um, I know that that therapy is a big part of examining life. Yeah. And um, maybe I'm a. Maybe I'm not a big believer in that process because to me it feels like uh, clearly you get at the origins of of your current suffering, but it also feels like it's it's, I'm dwelling on that. Yeah. Where 
was, if I go, like I went to the Meta retreat, yeah. and um, a woman asked Sharon Salzberg the question, or, or asked her to comment on whether uh, Metta was an antidote to aversion yeah. as fear or anger. And I thought, it's absolutely true. Because yeah. when I came out of the retreat, I was uh, a soft, gentle person, yeah. which is always my goal. Yeah. And uh, I got that in a week. I was transformed by that retreat. Yeah. And yet the therapy feels like I'm just kind of rolling around in the mud. Yeah. So the, the question was about whether, um, whether, I should say, at times, uh, psychothera- it's really a question about the relation of psychotherapy and spiritual practice. And sometimes does psychotherapy dwell too much on the problems or the issues? And you were experiencing some major transformation by doing loving kindness for a week, was it? Yeah. And so, um, of course, there are a hundred different kinds of psychotherapy, so it can't really generalize. Uh, but it's something that I have found, for example, in uh, I, I think, first of all, I think it's an internal issue within the field of psychotherapy. You know, in other words, there are some psychotherapists who say we dwell too much on the problems with the negative. You know, I certainly know psychotherapists who uh, make that point and say we should focus, you know, bring people more into positive states. <clears throat> so, so I think it's an internal issue within the field. Uh, I, I know that's the case. But it's something that's come up very much when I work with people around issues of uh, the judgmental mind, because uh, which which is definitely can be treated in a psychological way. And what I have found to be the most skillful way to work with uh, judgments, this is really at the center of, of how I have found myself working, is that I think of there being like these two broad areas. Uh, Two or two broad ways to transform the uh, judgmental mind, which, which, which is almost like a stand-in for difficult mind-emotional patterns. On the one hand, it's very valuable to go into the material. Un, you know, unquestionably, that can be helpful to go into, look at the judgments, see them, go more more deeply is quite important also. But I found that a complementary approach is also crucial which is to go into what I would call empowered or awakened states, which includes metta, mindfulness, equanimity, and to actually to basically hang out there a lot. That some of, uh, so the transformative practice needs both. You know, we need to go into the difficult territory uh, and because ultimately, and this is also has to do with the relationship between insight practice and concentration practice. Insight practice is taken to be the core way that transformation occurs, which is by seeing clearly something. So we need to look at our difficult stuff. But we can, uh, I know from working with people, that sometimes people can be in their difficult stuff and actually not be mindful. They think they're being mindful, but they're lost in it. So that's not helpful, for one. And then secondly, uh, I have found that uh, often, you know, it's particularly true with judgments where people can be judging themselves in a negative way. And some of that gets really shifted simply by being with beautiful parts of themselves in a sustained way. Then a lot of the self-judgments fall away without even looking at them. 
which is, I think, partly what you're talking about. So I have found that both approaches are important. That it's, but it is important not to dwell too much, and, there, and people do. And people often think that they're looking, but they're, they're stuck in it and lost. I, that's a big issue I, I found in, in practice. But that something like sustained metta can be really, really crucial you know, for shifting old, very old patterns and giving us a taste of this more awakened way of being. And, you know, um, and that often can be very, very healing. You know. This is a great question. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, maybe last one, and then we'll then we'll finish. Uh, Bill, please. Um, a, a product of my culture. I, I'm. Uh, I, I hear you talk about concentration, and uh, to me that means mind. Yeah. Um, and yet, in your presentation today, I, I got intuitions of concentration maybe not arising as it was mind activity, but from somewhere else. Yeah. Um, the qu- question is about. Uh, a tendency in this culture to think about concentration as you know, kind of, kind of like I was saying, the mind focusing like a laser or something like that on an object. And the question was, am I talking about something else? Um, uh, yes and no. It depends what we mean by mind. But in the sense of uh, mind being this narrow force that just concentrates, that focuses, uh, yes, something bigger than that. I, I find, as I was mentioning, that uh, for me, my initial way that I was meditating was that way. It was it was kind of like I. It was kind of a manipulative way in which I used the power of my mind to focus on an object and to stay there. And it was um, it didn't involve my body very much. And I found over time that that was unskillful. It actually led to some strain. And people, when they do concentration practice, unskillfully they do get headaches you know or there can be strain you know and i think i was experiencing that and i learned how to have the concentration come more from a general resting kind of a, a resting in my whole being and it, you know it took time but there but concentration i think is is very much this unification of all the parts of ourselves that is uh you know and i you know, came to actually learn how to concentrate without even focusing on anything. And that's my own particular biography. Uh, I don't want to get so much into the story, but I actually was on a long retreat, and I was really trying to concentrate in this more, uh, what, um, mm, almost like this more manipulative way. And I blew a fuse in my um, head. I was constantly, it's kind of like you see in the cartoons, like smoke starts to come up from the head. And I actually, uh, I think, damaged something almost like in my energetic body that was manifesting in, you know, as almost like uh, headaches. That, that stayed with me for a while. And almost out of necessity, I had to learn how to have that same quality of concentration without any effort at all, just by a kind of resting, which was very bodily, very much presence. And... Uh, and, I, I, and I came to see that actually as a more mature form of concentration. For me, it was actually a necessity because I couldn't, you know, I, w- it was, I was in a difficult place where it actually, I would, even to concentrate, like uh, to read a newspaper, my, mind, my head would get on fire for 
you know, that lasted for a while, but it, it worked itself out. So, no, I'm okay. <laughs> Can read newspapers. Exciting. <laughs> okay. Good. So it's a good question, but it is this, it is this relaxed unification, I think, of our whole being. You know? So that's why we have to be careful of those cultural connotations and the tendencies which we may have. Does that help, Sundal? Yes, thank you very much. Yeah. So let's just rest in natural awareness. You know, I was also thinking that this all can make sense of how some meditation practices, like I was thinking of some of the Tibetan practices, they invite us simply rest as much as you can in your natural awareness. And just rest there and be there as a kind of meditation, which, move, which almost is like a move which says right away, go to that effortless effort, to that mature form of concentration. So I'll invite us to stay there for a minute right now and again to reflect on what may have been helpful and any intentions you have coming out of our session today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.